Reginald decides to join the Foreign Office. It was almost as if Reginald had been conscripted into childbirth. He had lived a fairly irresponsible life throughout his early 20s. His sudden marriage had been more about infatuation, lust, and impulsiveness than any kind of considered choice. Reginald would say, though, that he was very responsible. He got his papers in on time. He was always available for his students. He was diligent in his studies. He sometimes claimed and spoke of things he knew not, but that was, after all, the academic disease, and he could scarcely be singled out. Reginald did not think very much about his future. In this, he and Tom had much in common. In fact, this is probably why Tom's obvious lassitude provoked Reginald so much and why he had been unable to visit Tom in his room. Reginald wanted an impressive future. He dreamed of nodding graciously in the face of endless applause. He loved the idea of entering a room and provoking ripples of, Isn't that... He liked the idea of climbing a stage in a tuxedo and accepting a Nobel or Pulitzer. He liked the idea that when society faced intractable problems, he would be almost ordered to do a series of radio lectures to address them. So when it turned out that Wendy was pregnant, his initial shock and horror given the circumstances of the discovery and the ghastly argument which happened right afterwards quickly gave way to visions of a wise and vaguely American Indian chief kind of fatherhood. He pictured his children's sons, usually, climbing on his lap wide-eyed and questioning, or sitting cross-legged on the floor as he sat in a leather armchair, delicately tracing the rise and fall of the Roman Empire with his flowing hands. "'My sons,' he thought, We'll see everything in its obvious first instance, that the world is flat, our football team is the best, and capitalism is good, and I will set them straight, and there will be much confusion, and it will take many moons for them to see the wisdom of my words, but they shall come to me when they are older, perhaps when they get to university, and say that they finally understand my thoughts, and apologize for questioning me at any time. Throughout the history of man, it could be said with great certainty that dreamy reveries about munificent patriarchy have found precious little weight with women vomiting at dawn and weeping over swollen feet that threaten to burst favorite shoes. As a woman watches her youthful figure sail into the foggy realms of pure history, into photos to be commented on by her children in twenty years, is that really mom? and grapples with strange eating preferences and food combinations that would give a starving man pause, she might not have a lot of patience with a man's dreams about obedience and worship from the coming offspring. Wendy desperately hoped that she would fall back in love with Reginald. His seed was growing within her. Surely that would reopen her heart. And it was touch and go for a while, but emotional reality always reasserts itself, and it wasn't long before they began to lean dangerously over the cliff. Reginald was unbelievably sensitive to hypocrisy. He was almost allergic to it, and he saw it everywhere. When Wendy asked him for something to eat, he would look at her skeptically, as if saying, come on, you're milking it just a bit much, aren't you? She would stare back, defiance, rage, and humiliation at war in her chest. She would have the sudden impulse to grab him by the nape of the neck, march him dog-like into the kitchen, force him to get the food, and shut the hell up while doing it. Or, when she awoke nauseous, she thought of vomiting on him just to make the point that she was, in fact, going through something rather challenging, and just needed to be taken care of a little, and was not trying to bully him with her infirmities. They had a relationship of tit-for-tat or of scorekeeping in which all acts of generosity were public and noted and tabulated and constantly trotted out for reciprocation. These kinds of relationships generally survive in a petty, mean, fragile way until one partner gets ill or pregnant. Two adults can measure and hoard and trade away their inner beaches grain by grain, but all that comes to nothing when pregnancy enters the scene. Because 
pregnancy is not a favor, but demands favors, the whole structure generally tends to collapse. Reginald may have sensed this in his heart, but he was nothing if not persistent, often in the wrong direction, but nonetheless. He was greatly concerned that his wife was acting her pregnancy up to wrestle concessions from him. He was determined to resist this at all costs. Reginald, it should be noted, placed great emphasis on willpower. This was his great defense against his mother's depression. He noted with great scorn and bitter triumph the times when Ruth had been able to get up and do something or other to attend some function of Quentin's or get herself to a school event. She can if she really wants to enough. Thus, if it were possible for her to get up and do something when she didn't, it was because she didn't want to badly enough. But, reasoned Reginald, willpower is expressly designed for those times when personal motivation isn't enough. Nature gave us a pleasure principle and willpower as well, so we would be able to do the right thing both when we felt like it and when we didn't. So those who didn't act when they could act were just weak. And to Reginald, the weak do nothing but manipulate. They are like children whining for a biscuit. These children have nothing of value to offer but a cessation of whining. It wasn't that kindness was impossible, it was just that it was so easily taken advantage of. To Reginald, this fact was as certain as gravity. It was the physics of his claustrophobic universe. Everyone is selfish, was the sum of his entire creed. Everyone is selfish, but pretends otherwise. If Wendy had turned to him while he was reading a book, and clearly enjoying it, relaxed for once, and said, Reginald, I don't like to see you relaxing, so I want you to go and make me a sandwich. No reason. I just feel restless and bored and want to exercise some power. He probably would have fainted with pleasure, then revived smartly, kissed every one of Wendy's fingertips, then run off to get her a sandwich. But it was never that honest, never that simple. Wendy would look at him a few times as he read. He could see her from the corner of his eye, feel the gathering resentment, the tension in the air like a blind dog in a cellar can feel a coming thunderstorm. But he would resist. He would resist because if he gave in and asked her what she wanted, she would be upset that he took so long to notice that she needed something. Or she would give him a list that would take the rest of the evening to finish. Or she would bring up some obscure emotional problem which would take her an hour to express and give him a headache when he finally realized that it was a veiled complaint against him. Reginald had a lot of theories about Wendy. He was not randomly cruel. Oh, no, he was very systematic. These are some of his theories. Wendy is spoiled. This was a set piece, a classic, a catch-all. During Wendy's life, her weak parents had given her anything she wanted. As a result, she was petulant, narcissistic, stingy, and believed she was entitled to the world on a blanket if she so desired. Wendy's inability to understand that other people actually had needs of their own, or a schedule which might conflict with her immediate needs, was one great root of her perpetual discontent. Wendy is driven by impulse. Wendy gets an impulse, and it always becomes an absolute. She drives by a big house, and suddenly she wants a big house. It doesn't matter if it is possible or even desirable. It must be talked about endlessly. If it is proven to be impractical, that doesn't matter. When it comes to her impulses, Wendy never backs down, modifies or withdraws them. Even if she wakes up one day and realizes that she doesn't really, in fact, want a big house, so what? Reginald is still responsible for failing to provide it to her when she did want it, or for resisting her desires. Wendy never notices when she turns the tables. Rules which apply to both parties are anathema to Wendy. She says, don't raise your voice to me. Reginald agrees. However, when she raises her voice, it is because Reginald is provoking her. Ergo, next rule, don't provoke. So if Wendy needles Reginald until he raises his voice, only the first rule is applied. He is in the wrong if he raises his voice. He is in the wrong if she raises her voice. Neat, tidy, and inescapable. If Wendy wants to ignore it, it doesn't exist. This 
is a juicy one. If Wendy does something clearly wrong in an argument, calls Reginald a fucking bastard, say, then she will forever ignore that she did it. When he called her a bitch, oh, that was a central part of arguments for the next six months. When she called him a spineless bastard, oddly enough, it never, ever came up again. If pressed, she denies it, or says he's making it up, or that she never swore at a man before she got married, so he must be doing something to turn her into such a harridan. Tit for tat, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. It took a while for Reginald to notice, but he did eventually. Wendy never did anything nice twice in a row. If she brought him coffee first thing in the morning, which happened maybe once every two months, she would not cook him breakfast until he had done the dishes. This drove Reginald mad, because she would hover in the kitchen until he did what was required to get his breakfast. It was one of their many silent wars. To his credit, Reginald did try to give more and more, but had to draw back because it felt like running off a cliff. Now, and again from Reginald's perspective, the solution to these problems was quite clear. Wendy must be made to understand that she is illogical. This was an analytical approach, but it is not exclusive to academics. The man wants the woman to be logical so he can love her. The woman wants to be loved despite being illogical. In any disagreement which goes on and on, and this one can last a lifetime, it is clear that both parties are getting underhanded benefits. The benefit to Reginald? If I have to get Wendy to understand that she is illogical, then it only stands to reason that I am the more logical one. The benefit to Wendy? Feelings aren't logical, so I am the more passionate and authentic one. And so, straddling the oldest divide in the world of the mind, the mind is logical and for dealing only with the world, versus the heart is illogical and good for dealing only with people. Reginald and Wendy careened forward into procreation. Now, as far as Wendy's pregnancy went, Reginald had a great problem. Clearly, he saw Wendy was suffering. He was not a heartless man, just careful. So, given that Wendy was suffering, and where Wendy suffers, she always collects, he had to come up with something. So, he reached into the oldest quiver of the male arsenal. Faced with her groaning, swelling body, he said, in effect, and in his heart, I had great aspirations, which I had to cut short in order to provide for this family. Thus we are both sacrificing, and so you have nothing over me, and so I can still demand my due. This was a neat trick, given that Reginald had been ambivalent about pursuing his PhD in the first place. However, to retain any clout in his marriage, he now needed to manufacture a sacrifice to keep power, and so he went to work. Great potential sprang up in his wake. He could have done anything. He was respected, admired, encouraged. He could have gone straight to the top. Nothing was impossible. The world was his, except that Wendy got pregnant, and so he had to give up all his dreams for the sake of the family. This was, Reginald knew, a most delicate operation something to be planned with skill, subtlety, and precision. He could scarcely march up to his wife, pull her hair back from the rim of the toilet, and say, Dear, I know you are suffering, but I have had to give up all my dreams for the sake of our family, so we're even. No, that would never do. First of all, his claims were still vaguely verifiable. She could call up his thesis advisor and demand a report, or talk to his students, or help him fill out applications for doctorate positions which he might not get, given the number of students who were grabbing the ropes of academia to avoid falling into the pit of the Depression. Oh no, this kind of sacrifice had to be alluded to, fixed in his own heart, and then only revealed bit by bit over many years. She would weep, of course, when she finally understood. Reginald never stopped to ask himself just why all his dreams of being understood always ended in weeping. For Reginald's great sacrifice to work, it did not have to be perceived by his wife. It had to be something he would keep faith with in his own heart 
and use as a fuel to resist her endless demands. Having destroyed his dreams for the sake of the family, he would be goddamned if he would spend a holiday weekend cleaning the attic or spending time with her whiny and decadent friends. He would have the absolute right to go fishing when he pleased. He could not be expected to give up everything. Thinking about this, Reginald could feel his chest tighten and his fist contract. Excellent! This works like a charm! Indignation, resentment, lost hopes, unpraised sacrifice and silent suffering. Oh, the possibilities are endless! Finally, having come up with the plan, the great sacrifice, Reginald now had nothing more to do than perform the great dismembering. Dismembering was Reginald's private term for letting something be forgotten through inattention and patient building. It was a kind of disremembering because it did not involve forgetting but remembering differently. It could not be achieved all at once. A new memory of Rome is not built in a day. It requires a commitment to a goal justified by some moral or practical absolute for Reginald. The goal was equality in his relationship. There were two absolutes, one moral and one practical. The moral one was that Wendy should not be allowed to get away with bullying. That would be really unforgivable. If she decides to use her pregnancy to skewer concessions out of him, then so be it. Fighting her openly would just generate more demands because it would be to impugn her motives as a coming mother, a loyal wife, and so on. Proof would be required, but Wendy was far too cunning and experienced an opponent to leave something as simple as proof around. And even if she did, as in the case of the phrase fucking bastard, she would just deny it anyway. So since she could not be fought openly, he had to create a matching delusion and then commit to it as strongly as she did to hers. Then, with both of them whipping their shaky, glassy horses across the plane of the future, they would both be disarmed, subject to the principle of mutually assured destruction. Throw me off my horse, I'll throw you off yours. Most moral. The practical absolute in Reginald's great dismembering was to do with children. It would be more important if they had boys, but it also applied to girls. If they had boys and Reginald had no power in his relationship with Wendy, they would grow up with no respect for their father. He would become one of those pathetic, lower-class fathers who took their tea on the back steps while his wife bashed plates around inside. His sons would look upon him with scorn as a henpecked, spineless man. They would look at him contemptuously and then go off and marry someone like Wendy, that last thought was quickly discarded. Sadly, Reginald believed that Wendy represented not just Wendy, but women, or rather that his mother represented both. He would be unable to discipline his boys. If he stayed on as a teacher, word would get around that he was henpecked and all would be lost. And if they had girls, they would take their cue from their mother, and then Reginald would be on the hook for providing endless instant gratification to many females and would, to himself, be forever lost. So Reginald put everything in place. He was going to be great. He decided not to do a doctorate. He telephoned Frederick Egerton and set up an appointment. He dressed like a saint going to his own execution. He almost missed the train and sat for over half an hour in Mr. Cuthbert Rathbone's office before being interviewed. Mr. Cuthbert Rathbone is introduced. Mr. Cuthbert Rathbone was bored. He was not bored in the here and now. He had not been bored for the last week, month, or year. Mr. Cuthbert Rathbone was born bored. When he was first pulled out of his mother, he had opened his mouth wide. The doctor expected a mighty yell. It did not come. Rather, his pink little mouth closed slowly, his heavily lidded eyes staring complacently at the white room, the doctor's red spattered smock, his mother's sobs, already disappointed 
at the lack of stimuli he was receiving. He did not take his mother's breast for more than three minutes at a time. He got bored of breastfeeding and then got bored of hunger and cried out weakly for the breast. This drove his mother quite mental. She was always having to leave the room every 15 minutes to feed him. In school, he could not rouse himself for sports. He had great intelligence, but also exasperated his teachers because he did not apply himself. One constant comment was, if effort matched ability, you'd be an A+. To which he would reply to himself, Why have you not motivated me? Certain kinds of discontent have the seeds of great, disastrous leadership. Cuthbert was discontented at all times, but he did not broadcast his discontent except unconsciously. He was perpetually bored, and so began to draw a following. Insecure men, in particular, who thought that he was not interested in them because they were uninteresting, began to curry his favor. Of course, Cuthbert had no favor to be curried, and so they became permanent acolytes, with him as the permanent chairman of the board. He went through a phase of most excellent foppery in his teams, bored, and homosexual seemed to go hand in hand. He tried rough sex. He tried losing money at gambling. He tried drugs. He tried fistfights. But nothing could rouse him. He thought he was onto a great secret, and he was not the only one who thought so. Perhaps, thought his acolytes, the world really is boring, and he is the only one to see it. In the cult of Cuthbert he was Christ, trapped on his cross, not by nails, but a shrug. It became great sophistication to be bored. Cuthbert let it know that he was bored with almost every breath, and that any attempt to convince him otherwise would be accepted with a kindly smile before meeting with utter failure. He was a great temptation for the enthusiastic. It is always the lot curse and cross of enthusiastic people to appear like doltish, grinning idiots. They could not believe that Cuthbert's boredom was not a cry for help. It was not, of course, no more than quicksand is a cry for help from the earth. They rushed at him, pom-poms pumping, and did one of two things. They either fled within ten minutes, chastened and vaguely sober for over half an hour, or they got stuck and expired under his heavy, heavy eyes. Death was a great ally of Cuthbert's, but it was a bit too obvious to be overused. Of course, every human endeavor would end up in dust. Of course, it might live on, as long as the memory of man persisted, but it would be mutilated beyond recognition and be lost to interstellar depths anyway when the sun exploded. Physics was not his strong suit, since he still believed that the sun would explode. Cuthbert's eyelids would fall even slightly further when talking about the death of the sun as if he were peering out of God's pocket protector watching the final end of everything. It is this wisdom, they seemed to say, that has produced what to you seems like such despair. It is the despair of a man who has come back to life and knows that there is nothing beyond the grave but a little waiting-room full of dust and broken vending-machines. He knows that this is to be our fate, and so cannot rouse himself to find joy in this sad life. Enthusiasm sometimes masks depression, but Cuthbert's depression masked no enthusiasm. It was not even depression in the clinical sense, because it was not a descent from a higher place. Boredom sometimes masks disappointment, but it seemed that everything after his mother's womb had been a disappointment to Cuthbert, and it might also be supposed that her womb had also been disappointing, too confined, too prone to movement and buzzing voices which could neither be discerned nor ignored, and the lack of stimulation, dark, boring, endless, it is impossible to sigh when you don't breathe, and very hard to drum your fingers in wet blackness. Cuthbert took such an arch view of human aspirations that they seemed like the droppings of ants to a cirrus cloud. 
What does your little ego desire? His eyes seemed to ask when confronted with the dream of another. What would satisfy your ridiculously vain view of your own importance? All the wealth of a world soon enough to be dust? All the admiration of eyes soon also to be dust? The clasp of a woman who is a cosmic heartbeat away from being horrifying bones? The achievement of a mark which will be entered into a book to be filed away among dust and mothballs? If one of his acolytes said that he wanted to be a writer, he asked him to name the famous writers of the 19th century. Then he would recite all the writers who were famous at the time and then forgotten, and that even the famous writers would be forgotten when the aerial bombers came. Try holding up a copy of Great Expectations when the bombs start falling. I suspect you would do better with a helmet. He was convinced that there would be another war, but was also convinced that it didn't matter at all. How much do we care for the victims of Napoleon? he asked. It was just over a hundred years ago. If we have another war tomorrow, in a hundred years, people will be laughing and happy again as if it never happened. That's why it will happen again. We repeat history because we do not remember it. We cannot remember it because if we remember it, we realize we are not so important after all. Recalling the past is recalling all that has been forgotten and to remind ourselves that we shall be forgotten as well, even as the last spade of earth falls on our faces. Look at how men live for their penises, and the silly little things don't even survive our death. No bones, they all turn to vapor, our memories of sex, vapor. No one knows or cares how many times Shakespeare had sex. Why should he have? And if he did, it just shows that literary talent has nothing to do with general wisdom. Not that general wisdom is more important. The only important conclusion of general wisdom is that general wisdom is utterly unimportant. Now and again, some bright spark would try to talk Cuthbert out of his boredom. They would prod and poke at him, pointing out that he slept and ate and went through school and all. But what else am I to do? Cuthbert would ask. I didn't make the world. One wag challenged him to define how he would have made the world. Cuthbert replied that the key word was not so much made as unmade. When told that that implied suicide as the only wise response, Cuthbert replied, but that would assume that we are perfectly philosophical, which we are not. We are animals with pretensions, and it has so pleased the framer of this dull view to place a desire for self-preservation in our hearts, without which we would wisely take our cues from our friends the lemmings. Because if life were so innately desirable, why would we need such a strong instinct for self-preservation? This is tied into the question of sex. If women were innately desirable, why do men have such physical drives? Our built-in chemical addictions in no way raise the value of that which we crave. We do not find that cocaine becomes objectively more valuable because we use it. It is all subjective. You can define something for yourself as a value, pursue it until your legs fall off, but don't expect me to lose anything by not participating in the self-delusory charade. I might even have gained something, no matter how uncomfortable that may make you. Cuthbert gained weight in his early twenties, but then got bored of being out of breath and of overeating and slimmed down considerably. He went through a phase where he still wore his larger clothes, but dropped this within a month as a vain affectation. What kept him going? His offhand remark about his disdain for suicide was clever, but it did not touch the essence. When he woke up every morning, it was with spirits lower than the day before. This seemed to be a process with neither logical nor emotional end. Every morning he had to redefine the term empty. 
It was not a rhythm. He did not bounce. He descended, or rather hollowed out, a little more each day. He felt as if his soul were clear ice. Then he felt that it was a frozen gas. Then that it was interstellar space. Then that it was space before the creation of space. Then something before the creation of that. Here his imagination failed him, but his emotional state kept continuing its evacuation long after even his ghosts had been driven out. There was no possibility of turning around. One cannot turn around when one is falling. Well, one can, but it doesn't help. It just makes one dizzy. One cannot retrace one's steps when one is floating through a void. There are no steps and no reference point by which one can know one is returning the way one came. Cuthbert felt some vague aftershocks of physical impulses like the movements of worms searching for a flesh through a skeleton. He lusted a little, he hated a little, but could not sustain it. If a man or woman offended him, he would dislike them a little, then pity them, and then feel a heavy indifference laying down over these impulses like a domino row of wet, falling mattresses. He did feel contempt, that was true. Contempt was definitely part of his repertoire. He felt a vague, striking disgust with enthusiastic people. They were like puppies being walked to the river for drowning, bouncing around, sniffing and shitting, oblivious, utterly inconsiderate of the feelings of the man walking them. Their exuberance would not save them, but it made his task all the harder, damn their hides. He was carnivorously funny in the way that only those without any values can be. His wit were central in helping him win acolytes. They joined in his sardonic laughter, not realizing that, until the age of about thirty, everything a young man loves and hates in the world is really in his own soul. They jeered and worshipped nothing but their own reflections, and the shadowy mass of Cuthbert behind them almost the whole sky, the whole horizon. He completed his degree at All Saints in 1926. He had, through the dark wake of his passage, been responsible for the following. One, suicide. Three, drug addictions. Six, pregnancies. Twelve, dropouts. The resignations of two humanities professors. Cuthbert had no idea what he wanted to do, which was right and proper. He felt that he should earn a living because otherwise time would likely kill him rather than submitting to his own lazy knife. He did some research into the various occupations. Banking was out because it required the showing of a profit and his superiors would likely be too blind to see that all the gold, whether in their vaults or their competitors, would be melted by the exploding sun. Similarly, a career in law did not appeal to him since his clients could scarcely be more free outside a cell than within it. And besides, all laws were man-made and so arbitrary and so there could be no more drama in navigating them than in winning a game of euchre. What else? What else? The treasury? Money was even more fictional than law, and since England had gone off the gold standard in 1932, it was even more illusory. Paper money would burn even more quickly than gold in the final flame. It would only be a difference of milliseconds, true, but that was still on the wrong side of the darkest truth. Cuthbert thought of opening up a little shop, a tobacconist's or a dry-cleaner's. He liked the idea. It was certainly living by his own ideals to throw away his education, which had a certain cachet, a certain yumminess. But after going to a number of small stores, he found the optimism of the small entrepreneur entirely against his grain. And they worked long hours. And their stores were quite dusty. We might all become dust in time, but there's no need to sneeze en rouge, eh? So that was out. Cuthbert thought for about a tenth of a second of tootling over to America and becoming some sort of homesteader, which to him meant rising at dawn, drinking cream from a ladle, and wrestling with livestock for some obscure economic reason. But that image did not last very long. Some elemental part of his defenses knew that they would be poorly served indeed 
if he attempted physical labour towards a definable end. Running from Edinburgh to Land's End was one thing, planting and growing was quite another. There would be that damnable sated muscle satisfaction, the sipping of mead before a roaring fire, and next thing you knew, ooh, too horrible to even contemplate. Librarian was another possibility. Wandering through the winter leaves of dead books had its appeal. He could dress in black without having to learn the properties of formaldehyde. Not bad. There would also be an endless procession of fresh-faced young lads to invite into his cramped little office, drown in weak tea and dismantle mentally. Not bad at all. So he looked into it and recoiled. Almost at once. It was a cold core of man-made rules. Knowledge itself was artificial. Learning the methods of categorizing it would be like eating a cake made of icing with icing on top. His teeth would certainly dissolve. No, he thought, I need a discipline that is man-made, as all are, and which also confesses itself to be man-made, a world that is unafraid of its papier-mâché nature, which displays it proudly. Cuthbert found his calling one rainy afternoon in London. He had come to London to pick up some books on early 19th-century nihilism, and he had seen a pamphlet for a lecture, entitled A Queen in the Hand, An Ace in the Sleeve, The Pragmatics of Cultural Diplomacy. Cuthbert had intended to go back to the country that afternoon. His parents, quite well-to-do, had an estate in Essex, but something in the title and subject arrested him. For years afterwards, Cuthbert could not recall the name of the lecturer. He had the feeling that if he were to rack his brain, he could probably dislodge it from its hiding place, but he never took the effort. It would be a bad idea. One should never meet people who have influenced you profoundly. It was worse than disappointing. It would be enraging. It would be to find out that your much-loved sergeant was in fact a war profiteer who constantly provoked the enemy for his own benefit. I am only human, he thought whenever the impulse came up again. I must be allowed to retain a few illusory crumbs. The lecture itself was deeply pleasurable. Well, not perhaps pleasurable. If it was pleasurable, it was the pleasure of an addict who finally finds the drug that he knows will exalt him beyond belief and then kill him cleanly. The lecture was composed of two main parts. The first was the argument that morality was like art. It was nothing but the aesthetics of what a culture could stomach. Weak cultures were squeamish and could suffer to see neither punishment nor poverty, so they had weak police and enforced the redistribution of property. Strong cultures enjoyed cruelty, and here some quotes of Nietzsche were called as witnesses, and so were destined to dominate weaker cultures. They could stomach the suffering of their own people, and so would forever have a decisive advantage over democracies which dither and worry and question their own motives. A democracy is always at least two years behind a dictatorship, the man said. Dictators do not have to consult their own citizens. If a dictator decides to wage war, wage war, he will. He can raise taxes, conscript, throw all the might of his economic powers into war production. He faces no impediment. The leader of a democracy, however, has no such freedom. Of course, we value our particular kinds of freedoms because we were raised with them, but they mean little in the wider world. We may wish to shake hands with a lion, but the lion probably has other ideas. If the world situation gets aggressive, and there are many indications that this is indeed happening, then the democracies are consigned to the role of hand-wringing worry warts while the dictator nations can act decisively. We must consult our people who are concerned not for the safety of their lands, but the protection of their own pocketbooks. They never wish to act hastily. They will wait for all the evidence to come in. They will debate the motives of their enemies. They will seek alliances that they know in their hearts they will not honor. They will bluster in public and concede in private. They will fall over any conciliatory statement. They will be willingly misled. They are the lambs to the world's lions. So what can be done? Uh, that is not the question, my friends. The more important question is, why should anything be done? It was at this point that Cuthbert sat bolt upright in his seat. I say again, why should anything be done? 
Does it serve the cause of humanity to mourn the passing of a weak, ineffective system? If the nature of democracy renders it useless against the resolute dictatorship, then should we not, instead of fretting and mourning its passing, rather help it along? Darwin is quite clear on this. The dictator believes that his whims are absolutes. We know that our own moral commandments are relative. Who is more likely to persevere, to triumph? The irrational absolutist or the rational relativist? He knows what he is fighting for, even if he is wrong. We don't know what we are fighting for, even if we are right. And what are we to say? Fight for the right to believe that nothing is really true, even though that right is not really worth fighting for, since it is not true either. It is the most pathetic nonsense. So what is to be done in the face of it? Well, the solution is clear, though unpalatable to our limited sensibilities. We cannot fight the dictators, that much is clear. They can force their citizens to march. We can only ask ours to. They can produce nothing but guns and let half their population starve. If an Englishman does not get his morning tea, he falls to pieces. They are martial souls. They want war. We are petty bourgeois. We want to be left in peace. They can prepare for total war in 12 months. By the time we notice that war is upon us, it is too late. Thus we cannot fight them, but we can Hope that they are rational. Now, by rational, I mean that I hope that they have some sort of self-interest at heart. If Herr Hitler, for instance, is everything that he claims to be in Mein Kampf, then we are doomed. We cannot fight him, and he wants to rule all of Europe. Thus we will dither and bite our nails, and he will rule all of Europe, at which point he can dispose of us as he pleases in his own good time. Our traditional weapon of blockade, which won the last war by the smallest margin, will be turned against us, and we will be starving within six months, since we grow only half the food we require. But, if Herr Hitler is a rational man, an aggressive one to be sure, but rational as well, then he has grievances. The German people have grievances, as we know, mostly over Versailles, so we must sit down with them, listen to their grievances, and give them what they want. If a man is stealing because he is hungry, if we give him food, he will stop stealing. If he is stealing only because he likes to steal, then nothing we can do will help. Let us hope that Hitler is rational and not homicidal. Problems with the man's formulation kept popping into Cuthbert's mind, but the man answered them almost as soon as they arose, which was a good sign. Now, a problem arises from this formulation, and the problem is this. Why would? Herr Hitler negotiate with us if he knows that we are unable to fight. Without threat of incarceration, a criminal is unlikely to make deals with the police. If Hitler does indeed want Austria, as he openly states, and he knows that we will never in a million years fight to save it, then why would he sit down to parlay, as our American cousins so charmingly put it, with us? That is the great question. It is the greatest question of this decade, in my view, and it comes down to one enormous, colossal bluff. There was incredulous laughter in the room. Cuthbert was startled to feel his face contorting into a strange shape, then realized that he was laughing as well. The speaker waited for the laughter to subside, then continued. You laugh as if diplomacy has ever been anything else, but no matter, we continue. If... Herr Hitler thinks that we will fight for Austria, then he will hesitate. He will worry. He will parlay. So the solution is simple. We have to convince Hitler that we will fight, even when we know that we will not. The man smiled as if he were delivering a punchline. But this, of course, is impossible. There was more laughter in the dark, dingy little hall. The faded flags of sports victories from the previous generation stirred dimly. We are an open society. We cannot control the various organs of communication. Spies work here almost unimpeded. Newspapers trumpet our every secret motive. We are laid bare to every enemy. This is a great problem, but it is only one quarter of the problem. Another quarter of the problem is that our enemy is not laid bare to us. He knows everything about us. We know almost nothing about him. Another quarter of the problem is that our population knows nothing about the enemy but what he tells them. Herr Hitler tells the British population through our newspapers that he wants peace. They believe him because they cannot stomach the alternative. 
The final quarter of the problem is that the German population, on the other hand, knows nothing about us but what Herr Hitler chooses to tell them. He can disarm us by telling our population that he wants peace, while at the same time inflaming his own citizens by telling them that we want war. This combination of four problems, which arise from a one-sided control of communications, means that England will always be at a disadvantage when negotiating with a dictatorship. Well, the term is more crippled than disadvantaged. More laughter. Cuthbert's face creaked and warped again. So what can we do? Well, this is where the heart of my little talk is. We can do nothing but confuse our opponents. In this we will be entirely honest, for we shall doubtless be confused ourselves. The government will say one thing to Germany, another thing to its constituents, another thing to the papers, another thing to our allies. We will sign treaties which contradict one another. We will commit to rearmament and pacifism at the same time. We will use strong words for both national honor and unilateral disarmament. We will threaten one day, appease the next, feign indifference the next, and storm out the next. Our diplomat in Paris will say one thing, our man in Berlin another, and a man in Krakow still another. We shall have as many positions as we have men and days in the week. Our opponents will get nothing out of us except that we are unpredictable, and that will have to be enough. Now, the question will arise, and I see it in some of your faces, and that question is the most important question that exists in the world at the moment. That question is, will it be enough? Well, to apply my own recommendations, I can honestly say that I both can and cannot answer that. A little more laughter. Cuthbert rubbed his cheeks, but they were numb. Let me answer it first, so that I can leave you with the right impression. First of all, it will not be enough if Hitler wants war. Baffling the enemy only works if the enemy wants to avoid conflict. So if Hitler wants war, in other words, given his claims in Mein Kampf, if he is not also bluffing, then baffling him will only buy us a little time. He may want war, but he still wants to win. Sooner or later he will get impatient and start a war, no matter what our posturing. If a man wants to rob you, he may enjoy gambling with you for a while, but assuming he is armed, the outcome of the game is fixed. The second answer I have is that I cannot answer it. If Hitler does not want war, but rather the redress of what are to him legitimate grievances, then our little dance might or might not work. If he realizes that we are bluffing, then he can march without danger. If he does not, and he does not want war, then he will not march. To ask if this policy will be enough is like asking a card player if his bluff is going to work. All he or we can say is, it is devoutly hoped. Cuthbert had not stayed around for the question-and-answer period because he did not want the man to be revealed as a grinning idiot with good timing and a great speechwriter, which had happened three times before. Instead, he charged out and then walked slowly for several hours, shivering in the rain. He did not have thoughts, not thoughts exactly, but something slowly began to thicken and darken within him like a buzzing strip of flypaper near a corpse. In his own way, Cuthbert actually loved England. He loved that he could be depressed here, without interference from some foot-stomping, pom-pom-waving line of dictatorial enthusiasts. I'm not like some under-functioning economy to be rescued by giddy absolutism. He hated the absolute state because it demanded enthusiasm. He was fundamentally happy to shoot anyone who demanded enthusiasm from him, especially since they would probably shoot him if he did not provide enough. It was him or me, officer... The idea of standing in a sweaty, endless rank, cheering some screaming little man in the distance, of renouncing his parents and studying third-rate ideological economics, it was all too ghastly for words. Freedom is the freedom to be bored, he cried mentally, rousing himself to be enthusiastic about ennui, at least. No, no. Cuthbert thought a regimented society would be the end of me. 
He loved England because England let him despise it. One of the great benefits of consigning every value to the inevitable solar flames was that contradictions could not trouble one. They would burn up as easily as paper, after all. Now, Cuthbert could not be said to be the greatest scholar of the hardest school, the school of self-knowledge. He had a great library, it was true, but the works were almost entirely untranslated. However, he did know two things. First, he was bored, and England allowed that. Second, he was a master at creating confusion. Cuthbert was the great chill that comes at 3 a.m., dissolving even family ties into shallow animal habits. He was the endless comparison which causes even the richest entrepreneurs to judge themselves in relation to even richer historical entrepreneurs. He was the endless nitpicking that dissolves a woman's sense of her own beauty as she stares despairingly into a mirror, reduced to finding flaws in slightly mismatched eyeballs, a tiny mole, or a little zigzag in the center part of her hair. He was the dead heart that makes a well-loved husband stare at his wife and wonder if she married him for money or status or convention or children or any reason other than his own self. Cuthbert had been any and all of those cold, glassy little demons hanging from the earlobes of the insecure with piercing hands, whispering icy, dissolving words. He knew nothing for certain. He doubted everything except for one thing. I have the ability to create doubt. Walking back to the train station, the lecturer's words buzzing in his mind, Cuthbert's pace increased. His shoulders squared, his back straightened. He looked up from the lamp-lit puddles. He loved England. He could create doubt. He had finally found his future.